As we continue to worship together, uh, I would ask if you have a Bible, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Um, And if you don't have one, we have some available. We'd love to give one as a gift to you. And uh, the words will also be on the screen for your convenience as well. Uh, I see many guests here today, and we welcome you. We are glad that you have come to worship uh, at Redemption Church this morning. And so uh, feel free to um, stop us and ask any questions. We have a guest services table out in the foyer, and we'd love for you to uh, get connected and and more information here. Um, Today we are looking at Deuteronomy 17, and we've been going through this series we call the Old School Gospel, seeing how the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament points us to Jesus Christ, how God and his grand story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, from creation through the fall of man and and through redemption and ultimate consummation in the end, how he is weaving this beautiful grand story of redemption, how God rescues his wayward people for his glory, for their joy, and that the good news of his kingdom would advance to the nations. And so we see this story played out throughout the Bible. Every book of the Bible is displaying this beautiful story. And every book of the Bible leads us to see that Jesus Christ is the hero of this story. And so um, that is kind of where we're coming from. If you are new here, that's where we're coming from. And if you are uh, regular here, that's still where we're coming from. Um, So the book of Deuteronomy does just that. We see that God had set his people free from bondage in Egypt, and he he was leading them to a land that he had promised them for generations. And through this story, there is uh, time and time again, God's people doubted, they disbelieved, they rebelled, and God was continually gracious to them to continually rescue them and restore them and renew them, uh, sometimes with severe consequence and sometimes with severe grace, but all the while uh, God was being good to his wayward people. So as we look at Deuteronomy 17 today, um, I want us to start with this understanding that Scripture, the Bible, is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit has inspired this text for, um, uh, by, uh, has inspired this word and has preserved it for generations for our benefit today. And that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives our minds the capacity to understand and our hearts the, um, to beat with belief. Uh, it's the work of God to cause the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the lame to walk, the dead to raise to new life. So that's where we're coming from as well. So let me pray, and then we're going to look at Deuteronomy 17 today. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to your people throughout generations. We thank you that you have continually shown your grace to your wayward people. And God, I thank you that you have drawn us here together this morning. God, those in this room who may be longtime veteran believers, those who may be non-believers, those who may be seekers, doubters, skeptics, those who are in rebellion, those who are experiencing brokenness, those who are begging for renewed joy. God, thank you that you have drawn us all here together this morning. God, we thank you that through Christ there is good news for all of us. Wherever we are in our spectrum of faith, you have called us here. And Lord, I pray that you would have your way with each of us, that you would stir up our minds to believe, our hearts to believe, God, that you would uh, give us a passion for your name, God, that you would draw us close to you because you are a loving Father. So God, we thank you for this time. We ask that we use it for your glory and our joy and that the gospel of Christ would advance. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy 17. Part of the story today we see is telling us more about who God is and more about the universal human condition. I want to start by saying this. Some parts of the Bible are descriptive. Some parts of the Bible are prescriptive. What I mean by that is many parts of the Bible are prescriptive in that they instruct something specific to do. There is a prescription. You are prescribed to do something. Other parts of the Bible are descriptive. They describe something about God and maybe describe something about God's people. And oftentimes we get confused when we try to make something that's descriptive prescriptive. Sometimes there'll be a story describing something and we want to make it prescriptive and say, well, since that is what they did, we must do the same thing. Now, sometimes that's the case, but sometimes not. So today is an interesting passage in that we see God prescribing things to his people Israel that for you and I are not prescriptive. They're descriptive, meaning... God commanded Israel to do certain things, but some of these things we are not to do today because the story is to describe something about God, describe something about people, and to lead us to Jesus. You'll understand in just a moment. In fact, why don't we read a couple verses and then it will probably make sense. All right, let's look. We're going we're gonna to kind of hop around in Deuteronomy 17 and then I'm going to try to connect the dots for us today. I'll look at Deuteronomy 17. Uh, Verses 2 through 7. If there is found among you with any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon, or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told, and you hear of it, you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses or the one who is to die is to be put to death a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness the hand of the witness the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst now this is god's word it is true It is right, it is good, it is holy, and there is something here for you and I. It's descriptive of something that was prescriptive for Israel. What I mean by that is if there is an evil person in Augusta, Georgia, we do not drag them to the gates and stone them to death. Right? But this is to tell us something about God and His people. There is something about this context that we see. Let's hop to the end of this chapter. So you see right here, God is prescribing instruction to Israel, saying if there is evil in your midst, an abomination, idolatry, if there is transgression, if somebody has broken the covenant, drag them out and stone them. But wait, let's hop to the end of chapter 17. And we're going to fill in the gaps here in a minute. Verse 18 starts talking about a king to rule over God's people. 
Verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. And his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel. This too is God's Word. This is describing what would happen if a wonderfully perfect king would rule over God's people. So here in chapter 17, we see two extremes of what it's like to live as a human. Right? At the end of it, you see somebody ruling over God's people rightly with God's Word, being faithful in worship and wisdom and in His heart, and that things would go well for the kingdom, for God's people. That is the longing of Israel. They had been in captivity for a few generations. Now they're wandering around the desert saying, we want a king, we need a kingdom. God's saying, look, this, this is what it could be. A great king ruling over you. Faithful to my word, faithful in our covenant, having our relationships be whole again, and things would go well for God's people. And at the beginning of the chapter says, hey, look, if there's evil among you, it's wicked, it destroys everything. Life is lost when there is broken covenant, when there is transgression, when there is idolatry. So what does this mean for us? How do we get from brokenness to being part of a beautiful, perfect kingdom. This was the desire of God's people Israel. Deep down, this is the desire for every human that's ever lived. We all want to be part of God's family, right? We all want to live in harmony with each other and with the Lord. We want things to go well for us, right? Or is that just me? See, this passage of Scripture if you, if you view it through the lens of the gospel, of the good news of who God is and what He does for His glory and for the good of His people, it leads us to Jesus. In fact, this, this whole passage is just showing God's goodness, human brokenness, and the need for rescue, the need for a true king. So we're going to break it down into a couple verses at a time, and we're going to see how all of this will cause us to look to Jesus and I hope that it does cause all of us to look to Jesus. Because Jesus is our true, righteous priest and king. Jesus is God incarnate coming to rescue His wayward people. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should live but can't. He died as a substitute in our place as a sacrifice so that we could have a right relationship with God and each other. And this good news changes our world and our lives here and now and into eternity. That's where we're going. Buckle up. Let's look at the first couple of verses again. Let's start at verse 1. It's a good place to start, right? At the beginning. God is instructing His people Israel, saying, look, you were in bondage. I'm leading you to a new land. Things are going to be different. You were to be a good and holy and righteous people. You have a covenant relationship with me and with each other, so things are to look differently. Here's what's going to go down. Verse 1, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which there is a blemish, a defect, what, whatever. 
for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. God is instructing them on worship. He's like, there's a certain way I want you to worship me. Verse 2, if there's found among you in any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, or a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, transgression this covenant, has gone to serve other gods, you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Now, I want us to just think about this for a minute. Does that sound harsh? You're thinking, man, that's, that's mean. Why, why would God want people to die? Right? God is serious about worship. He is serious about the holiness of His name and the purity of His people. In these verses, there are numerous words that describe the brokenness of humanity. Right? He says that there is evil transgressing the covenant, serving other gods, abomination to the Lord. Right? You see, God's people were rescued to be in a right relationship with Him and a right relationship with each other. God did this for them. They did not earn that. They did not do right things in order to be accepted and loved by God, but rather God loved them and through His grace accepted them and said, because of that, you're to live differently. Notice God gave His commandments after He rescued them from slavery. He never said, do these things and then I'll set you free, but rather He said, you are free and as my people live this way. You were to worship me and me alone, not other gods, not the sun, not the moon, not the stars. You were to have a right relationship with me. Don't break that covenant. You're to have a right relationship with each other. Don't do evil against one another. You see, God's people broke their covenant relationship with God and each other. They served idols, other gods, in the place of where God should be. Now for you and I, don't, don't check out, because we can often say, well, I don't worship the sun, I don't worship the moon, I don't worship a statue, but idolatry looks different in our lives today. Basically, idolatry is putting something in a place of prominence in your life, the place where God should be. If you fill it with something else, that's your idol. Your idol can be money, it could be fame, it could be status, it could be a certain career. It could be, it's often good things that we make ultimate things. Things that we're like, hey, this is a good gift of God, but instead of enjoying the gift, I'm going to make it my ultimate God. What is that for you? All of us have it. All of us have it. And to show how serious God is about it, He prescribed to Israel, not to you and I, we're going to get there, He prescribed to Israel what needed to happen to show how serious He was about it. Stoning to death. I want to talk about that for a minute. We can look at this passage and often miss the multifacets of layers of what's going on. I mean, I don't know what it was like to be in Israel at this time, or what it was like to be an Israelite at this time, because I'm, I'm not one. But I think often we can think of a bunch of pious people saying, well, we are right, we are holy, and that person is evil, so let's, let us do what is right and good and kill that person. 
But friends, I think a lot more was going on than just that. I think the purpose of this was not only to get rid of that evil, but to expose the brokenness that is common to every human. Can you imagine? I'll just, let's go to Jesus. If you look in John 8, there is a story of a woman caught in adultery. She's sinning. She's doing evil. She's breaking the covenant. She has an idol of sex, perhaps. She's doing everything against what Deuteronomy 17 says. You know what happens in the story? The religious guys that say, we want to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. We are holy. We are right. We are going to take this woman and stone her to death because that is what is right and good. What happens in the story? They drag her out in public, prepared to stone her, and Jesus steps in. You know what Jesus says? He says, you who have no sin can cast the first stone. Everybody drops their stones one by one and walk away. You know why? It's because just like in this passage, God is so serious about His holiness and goodness and evil and transgression and idolatry is in the heart of every human that that this is not meant to be, well, I'm better than you, therefore I can be your judge, but rather look how much of a wreck we all are. We are all in need of rescue. I love John 8 because this woman who was, she was certainly in sin and so was the guy that was with her. He's not even in this. That's not fair. But can you, this reveals the brokenness that is there. That's why, why the people drop their stones and walk away. Because in that moment, they say, man, we, we have sin too. And Jesus stoops down and says, hey, there's no one here to condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It's just the beauty of the gospel is where we deserve punishment. God gives us grace, and that grace changes us to sin no more. It's not a free pass to go. He doesn't say, hey, you're not condemned. Just go back to that dude and whoever else you want to. It's fine. No, Jesus says, look, I don't condemn you. Go sin no more. The power of grace is that we are changed. We are rescued for our good and for our joy. This is why Jesus does this in John 8. This is why Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, before you pick the speck out of somebody else's eye, look at the plank in your own eye. So can you imagine being in the Israelite camp and finding somebody sinning and being an idolater and grabbing a stone and saying, well, we're going to do what's right and holy. And in that moment thinking, but, but I have sinned too. I have brokenness too. Now, there is a more common cultural connection than I think we realize here. Because all of you are probably like, Jeremy, when is the last time anyone has stoned somebody in a church? Tell you what, it can take a different form these days. I was reading last week, there are, there's this weird movement in Christian circles across the globe for very talented writers to make it their goal to expose everybody on blogs, right? 
I have friends at churches in Texas and in Washington State and up in Atlanta and even here in Augusta, myself included, who have experienced this. Like people think it's like their righteous, holy duty to throw a stone. I'm thinking, where do you do you see the gospel anywhere in your life? I mean, they're not throwing stones, but man, they're writing harsh, harsh words. There are people, because it's the condition of the human heart, to think, well, well, maybe... Let me just step step back and ask you this. Where do you see yourself in this story? The story of Deuteronomy 17, when God says there's evil, transgression, covenant-breaking, idolatry. Stone them. Do you find yourself saying, yes, grab a stone. I'm holy. I'm not an idolater. I'm righteous. I do what's right. I do what's good. I know the Bible. I go to church. I give. I tithe. I'm moral. I have a stone. Let me throw it. Do you find yourselves there in the story? Do you find yourselves on the other end saying, man, I have screwed up. I have broken every commandment ever this morning. I'm angry. I am an idolater. I am a transgressor. I'm a sinner. I have done wicked, evil things. I'm thinking evil, wicked things right now. I deserve to die. Do you find yourself on that end of the equation? Because we often find ourselves on that end or the other end. And let me tell you, we are all on the broken end. That's the point of the story. That is why in John 8, nobody can throw a stone at the adulterous woman because nobody is perfect. And that's, I want us to all find ourselves there. I'm just going to tell you that. We don't have room for anybody to walk in with your holy righteous stone. Just drop it now and join us over here on the broken side of things. Please. There are far too many folks walking around with stones in their hands thinking, well, I'm just doing Deuteronomy 17. No, you're not. You're not doing Deuteronomy 17. You're missing the gospel. You have to see how Deuteronomy 17 points to John 8. Right? Woo! I'm going to preach to myself, y'all. If you want to just be a part of this, I'll just be over here. Deuteronomy 17 is pointing to the New Testament. Look at John 8 when you get home and read that story and find the beauty of God's grace in that story. And don't think, well, I just want to be one of the guys with the stones. No, you don't. Don't be a guy with the stone. Be the humble woman on the ground saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, because he will and he does and he is gracious. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you anymore. Go and sin no more. That's what Deuteronomy 17 is causing us to look to. I want us to see it more than anything. I do not want to train us to be disciples that can pick up heavier stones because that's popular too. People walk around with a pebble saying, well, I'm going to be holy and righteous. I got my stone. And then what they end up doing is thinking that good discipleship means to take that stone and trade it in for a bigger one and trade it in for a bigger one. So we all have these big freaking boulders on our shoulders saying, we're disciples. Who can we crush? And it's disgraceful because you missed the gospel. Let's move on to the next point. There's only so much voice I got here. Here's the beauty of that, is that Jesus comes in and is our substitute and sacrifice. Jesus comes into the story. I go back to John 8 because Jesus comes in and He has the authority to condemn and not condemn. Right? The religious righteous guys can't condemn the adulterous woman. They can't stone her. Jesus comes in and says, hey, I have the authority to condemn you, but you know what? I don't. Go and sin no more. 
I'm, I'm offering you grace. I'm offering you mercy. I'm offering you love and forgiveness. Get up and go back to your life different than you are now. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is our substitute. He stands in the gap and where we should live the perfect life but can't because we break it because we're idolaters and broken, sinful, wicked, evil people. God steps in in the form of Jesus Christ and says, I will live the perfect life in your place. Jesus says, I will live the perfect life. I could throw the stone, but I don't. On your behalf, I will not throw the stone. He's also our sacrifice. Where we should get stoned, He does die for us. In fact, the New Testament says, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God in Deuteronomy 17, God is, is very serious about holiness and righteousness and things being the way they ought to be. But Jesus comes in and says, uh, God's people always break that. They can't live that way, so I'm going to come live that way. And for those evil people who should be stoned, they should be. They broke the covenant. They're idolaters. They're sinful, wicked people. They should die. Jesus steps in and says, I will die in their place. They don't have to die. I am dying in their place. Romans 5.17 For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus takes our sin. Jesus takes our punishment. Gives us His righteousness. Ascribes to us the righteousness. A perfect record that we should have but can't. He gives to us in our, in our place. Jesus is our only hope. I want us to see some more. You guys want to do a little bit more? Let's go onward here. So, so Deuteronomy 17, I would encourage you to look at John 8 and see how those stories connect. And look at 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 5. Let's move on a little bit more because I want us to see that Jesus is our substitute and sacrifice, that He lives the life we should live, which means He could could pick up the stone if He wanted to, but He doesn't. And that Jesus is our sacrifice, meaning that where we should be stoned for our evil, Jesus takes our place instead on the cross. So Jesus is our substitute and sacrifice. That's what Deuteronomy 17 is pointing us to in verses 1-7. through All right, verses 8-13. through Let's look at this. I'll try to move quicker. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, wow, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose, and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. You shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose." You shall be careful to do accordingly all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands and the minister stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So shall you purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Tough times, right? <laughs> so God is instructing His people. He says, hey, look, if there are some legal disputes within you, 
within your midst and you need some wisdom and you need some outside judgment, go to the priests and to the judge. All right. We think in our mind like somebody in a black robe with a gavel. That's, that's probably not what was going on. Maybe, but I don't think so. Um, but they go to the priests. Now, the priests were the go-betweens for God's people and their relationship with the Lord. All right, things were, were different before Jesus. There were uh, a system of worship that would come to develop after this in the temple. Now they were, during Deuteronomy, they were, tr- they were portable. So they were traveling with a tabernacle, like a portable tent, kind of like they would set up as they were to travel from one place to another. And there was a series of things they would do to worship the Lord, to approach the Lord. And, and in that time developed uh, some priests whose role it was to be the go-betweens for God's people and their relationship with the Lord. They would offer sacrifice. They would offer prayer. They would, anytime a covenant was broken, even if it was like one person or one family, they would be the ones to act on behalf of God's people. They would go and offer sacrifices for whole villages, for whole families, for whole for all of the people. It was the way... It was it was who you, it was your go to person, right? If you're like, man, the relationship with God is broken, the relationship with each other is broken. We need to go to the priests. The priests were the mediators, the go betweens. Now we can look at this today and think, Jeremy, this was very complicated. <laughs> what does this have to do with you and I today? I'll ask you this question. When somebody wrongs you, or when you wrong somebody, or when things don't seem to be right with you and your relationship with God, when you're not feeling connected to the Lord, when you're not feeling like spiritual in the moment, where do you go to revive that connection? If things aren't right with you and somebody else, what do you do to try to make those things right? Because that is what, in essence, you see as being your priest, so to speak. Your go-between. Because, friends, we can often say, well, things aren't right with me and this person. I'm going to try this thing, this method. Things aren't right with me and the Lord. I'm going to try this uh, religious thing or this tradition thing. We can try to do things through like moralism or intellectualism. We can even misuse good things that God has placed to point us to Jesus. What I mean by that is this. How much this... I have to be very careful I say this. Everybody was going to be like, yay, we're free, let's go. How much stock... I have to be careful. I'll probably say this ten times because I'll get it wrong. I'm just going to say it. How much stock do you put in your spiritual leaders, like your pastors? How much stock do you put in your church or your tradition? What I mean by that is this. I am not a Levitical priest. I am not the go-between for God's people and God. Do you know that? Jesus is. And most of us, if you have any church connection, at some point in your life can think back to some man or woman who maybe had discipled you or led you for a season, and you said, man, that, God really used that person to bring me close to God. And you know what? Maybe maybe they failed you at some point. Maybe they disappointed you at some point. Maybe you don't have a relationship with them anymore. What's that doing in your heart and your soul? 
Because what it should reveal is the place that you've put them in your life that maybe God didn't put them there to be. Am I making sense? Like what I mean by that is this. My role as a pastor, it's not my identity. I'm not a priest. I'm 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 serving here in a certain role to like teach the Bible and proclaim the gospel to you the best of my ability. But you know what? I promise you, if you know me long enough, I'm probably going to let you down at some point. In fact, I've probably let some of you down already. Maybe I taught something wrong or said some remark wrong or maybe something happened and I had to reschedule a meeting or maybe something. That's okay. Because I'm not your priest. Jesus is your priest. In fact, the Levitical priesthood is is set up to point to who Jesus would be ultimately. And and sometimes we can say, well, this pastor let me down. I'm going to go find a different pastor. This church, maybe you were part of a church and the church let you down. You're going to find another church. This church may let you down. Probably will. Maybe something was wrong here. I don't know. Probably. Something's always wrong here. Welcome to redemption. Maybe you have left a denomination or a tradition. Now listen, I want to be careful. If there is blatant, unrepentant, broken sin, and people are like, no, we're just going to be sinful, 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 man, get out and run. But if there are people saying, look, we know we're broken, we're trying, we're just looking to Jesus, we're looking to Jesus, we're looking to Jesus, that's a good place to be. I often tell this story. When my wife and I, it was our second year of marriage, we went to the Grand Canyon. Have you ever been there? You should go. That place is really cool. And the gift shop, man. <laughs> but one of my favorite things about the Grand Canyon, I mean, it's, it's so like cliche, but it's true. You like, you stand on the side, you're like, oh my God, it's crying. Just like, I'm so small. That hole is so big. <laughs> you know, the first time I saw it, I, this is really old. I don't know why I'm telling this part of the story. I was a single guy, and I went out there with my dad, and I had, like, bleached, shaved hair. It looked like Eminem. <laughs> and we rented a car in Phoenix, and we drove and saw some cool sights, and we stopped at a Walmart. I don't know why I'm telling this part of the story, but I can't stop. Help me. You know that part about pastors disappointing you? Here it comes. I'm just going <laughs> So we went to Walmart to get some beef jerky and Gatorade. And this was back when there were things called CDs. And I had a CD player, Walkman, you put it like right there. And like these kind of headphones. And I bought uh, the latest worship album by David Crowder. It was his second one. Some of you thought it was his first, but it was his second. And so I remember going to the Grand Canyon and just having a moment where I had my Bible and I was listening to this worship album sitting on a rock, like watching the sun come up and just like bawling my eyes out, thinking, this is unreal. I'm an emotional guy, I know. God gave me these emotions. That has nothing to do with the story. That was a free aside. All that to say is the Grand Canyon is really, really amazing. It's like moving in the soul when you see the sunrise over the Grand Canyon. I mean, the colors and just the scope and the magnitude is unreal. Now, when you're driving, depending on which side of the canyon you're going on, when you're driving toward the rim, you're going to pass some signs along the way that say, Grand Canyon, 20 miles. Now, we were driving on the interstate, and there's like these brown and white metal signs, and some of them were rusty, some of them were dented, some of them had 
stuff growing on them. As you get closer, there are like these wooden posts that look all rustic and cool, and some of them are rotting, and some of them had woodpecker holes in them and just whatever. And as you get a little closer, there's there's actually like there were some A-frame signs pointing once you like get out at the park to say the canyon's that way in case you can't find it, go that way. Not a soul would dare pull the car over and spend the bulk of their vacation staring at the sign and then getting up and leaving. Like if you go to the Grand Canyon, you're not going to pull up to that dented, rusted metal sign that says Grand Canyon and just stare at that sign and go, well, it's dented, it's rusty, forget it. I'm going to go find another sign and get in your car and go the other way. You wouldn't pull into Grand Canyon Park with that cool wooden, like wood-burned, chiseled, smoky bear-looking, fort-looking sign that says, Welcome to Grand Canyon Park. You wouldn't look at that and say, Well, I don't like the wood. It's a little weathered. Let's go find another sign. The point of the sign is to show you where the canyon is. If it's dented, look at it, say it's dented, but there's the Grand Canyon. Look how beautiful the canyon is. If you look at the wooden sign and it's a little weathered, say, man, that poor sign needs a little upgrade, but at least it's pointing me to where the canyon is. That's the point of the Levitical priests. That's the point of pastors and ministers and churches. And deny. the whole point is for us to look to Jesus. Does that make sense? Your assignment is to get your Bible and get to the Grand Canyon as fast as possible. And don't you dare take a picture of one of those signs. <laughs> The reason I'm saying that is because what was very common for God's people, Israel, was to start getting into the intricacies of the priesthood and forgetting that the priesthood was to lead them to the relationship with God and a restored relationship together. Same thing happens for us today. We forget that the broken signs are merely just to point to Jesus, to point to the beauty of the canyon with all the colors and the scope and the magnitude that will make you weep. This is to point us to Jesus, and we often get stuck on the sidelines looking at other signs. I want us to not look at signs anymore. Let's look to Jesus, right? Hebrews 4, 14-16, Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Paul writes in First Timothy 2, For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Get that? One mediator. Your religion can't be the mediator for you. Your moralism can't be the mediator. Your spirituality can't be it. Your pastor, your priest, your denomination, your church, none of those things are to be the one mediator between God and man. We are just a collected group of people worshiping the Lord and looking to our one true mediator, Jesus. You with me? I'm going to beat that drum until somebody knocks me out or until I drop. I, I want us to look to Jesus there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Now, praise the Lord that He uses busted, rusty, broken signs to point that way. Some signs look better than others. I'm fine being the broken, rusted one. It's fine. Just look to Jesus, right? Just look, look to Jesus. That's the point. I need to wrap this up. This was a little much longer than I thought. It's because of the David Crowder story. It didn't make sense. <laughs> 
Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Let's look at this. So I want us to see that Jesus is our substitute and sacrifice. Secondly, that Jesus is our true priest and mediator. The Levitical priesthood was to lead God's people to look for that perfect priest. Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and man. Look at the end of this here. It says, verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you. Notice how many times Deuteronomy says that. The Lord your God has given you. Over and over again, He's given you this. He's given you this land. It's a gift, a gift, a gift, a gift, a gift. You have to get that. God has given you this land, Israel. You're not earning it. You're not getting it yourself. God has given you the land. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell there, and then say, I will set up a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. God's people had the desire to have a kingdom. They were nomadic for generations after they had been enslaved. They wanted a kingdom. They wanted a king. They saw other nations that were ruling and successful and saying, well, they're, they're good. They have good kings doing things. They have kings who are acquiring armies and kings who are acquiring wealth. We want a king like that. And God says, look, I'm going to give you a king, but it's a king who I will choose for you. We see that this... God shows us snippets of this going through the line of David. We see Saul becomes king, okay for a while, but but not really. We see David is a king, a man after God's own heart, but he blows it a time or two or three, right? He's sinful, broken. His son Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. All of that was to point us to Jesus, who is our true and better king. You and I today are like, well, who... We don't have kings, but maybe you find hope in your political party or your tradition, or maybe yourself. Maybe you're like, well, hey, I'm the smartest man ever. I'm in control of my life. See, friends, Jesus is our only true hero and king. In fact, Moses goes on to say, hey, look, the the king is going to sit on his throne and rule a kingdom with the law of God. I mean, that's showing a king who is going to rightly bring into play God's word on earth. This is a foreshadowing of what the kings would would try to do but can't and what Jesus ultimately will do because Scripture assures us of this in 1 Timothy 6. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be the glory and honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. We see Jesus in Revelation 19. So awesome. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a huge statement about Jesus. Right? Israel wanted a king, a true king. Jesus is that true King. Plain and simple. And this changes everything for you and I today. If we see Jesus as the true, wisest, richest, kindest ruler of everything, that'll change how you treat your neighbor. That'll change how you talk to your wife. It'll change how you raise your children. It'll change how you steward your money or your house or your blue Nissan pickup truck. 
or my blue Nissan pickup truck. It'll change how you use your home and use your property. It'll change how you give your money to those in need. It'll change how you tip when you go to a restaurant. If you see that Jesus rules everything and owns everything, if you see that you are a person who was saved by grace, everything changes. And that's what Deuteronomy 17 points us to. I want us to see that, that Jesus is our substitute and sacrifice, that Jesus is our intercessor, our priest, our mediator, and that Jesus is our true and only king. So with that said, I want us to have a time of response. If you are here today, as we do often at Redemption Church, we have a time of repentance. Repentance means to turn from something and turn to something else. It means to turn from those functional saviors in your life, the things that you've made your priest, your king, your substitute, the things that it could be your ego, it could be your money, it could be your status, it could be your pride, whatever. Turn from those things and turn to Jesus. It could be your sin and brokenness, but don't turn from them and only turn halfway to something that's not as bad. That's what people often do. It's like, that's a wicked thing. Well, this isn't as bad. I'll turn to that. I want us to do a full 180 and turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The call of the gospel is to repent and believe. To turn from that and to believe means ongoing relational trust. Trusting who Jesus is, who He said He is, and that He did what He said He would do. So there's a couple ways to respond during this time. I want you to repent and believe the gospel. The musicians will come back and lead us in music. I encourage you to sing or just sit where you are and think about Scripture, to grab somebody to talk if you need to, to pray. We will have communion set up here before you. We have uh, bowls of wine and juice. It might just be juice today. Uh, Wine and juice. They're labeled. And bread. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. The wine and juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. If you are a believer, we invite you to partake of this in remembering who Jesus is and what He's done. This is a proclamation of who He is and what He's done for us. It's a proclamation uh, over us of who we are as His people, uh, restored, redeemed, renewed, rescued. Okay. If you're not a believer, we encourage you to stay where you are and just think about these things. We we want you to understand what this is before you participate in this part of the worship. We're not trying to isolate you, but we'd rather uh, talk with you about the gospel before you participate in this. Um, I'll read from Matthew 26. This is what Jesus said. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to your people throughout generations. And Jesus, we thank you that you are our true king our true priest, our true substitute and sacrifice. That Jesus, you lived the life we should have lived, but can't. That you died a death in our place. Because of that, you give us a credit of your righteousness before the Lord. God, I thank you that you are our true priest, Jesus that you are the true mediator between God and man, that we do not have to do anything to earn our way or to work our way back to God. But you've done that for us. 
And Jesus, I pray that you would cause us to, uh, that your Holy Spirit would cause us to repent in our hearts and minds of things that we've put in place of you as a mediator. God, whether it be our own intellect or our own tradition or our own faith, God, the things that we've put in place that we think we are the judge, that we have any kind of uh, moral standing to pick up a rock and throw it. God, I pray that you would cause us to repent of the despair we have if we find ourselves caught in sin, transgression, or idolatry. God, I pray that you would convict us of those things, but Lord, in that we would not despair thinking unfair judgment is coming, but Lord, that we would look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would look to you as the one who stood condemned in our place and has rescued us. And God, like the woman caught in adultery in John 8, Lord, that we would... uh, as we lie on the ground in the dust, that we would hear those words that you would say, and neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk in faithfulness, to walk in joy, to walk in repentance, to walk in faith, to walk in kindness, to walk in grace, to walk in mercy, Lord, that we would be recipients of your grace and stewards of grace. Lord, that as we see you, Jesus, as our true King, knowing that we do not own anything on this earth, but we are merely stewards. God, I pray that we would be good stewards of creation, good stewards of what you've given us, good stewards of our resources, good stewards of our relationships, good stewards of the influence and the position you've placed us in, seeing that we are merely here to make your name look great and to bring restoration and grace to broken areas of life. So God, we thank you. We pray that in this time you would bring repentance and belief in our hearts and minds. Use it as you will for your glory and our joy and that the gospel may advance. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.